Our first reading today is um, Psalm chapter 6, a Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all of you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. It's time for our second reading. And this will be the reading from which our sermon arises. Uh, We'll read from Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36 down to verse Mark 50. Let's hear God's word together. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. And the Pharisee who invited him saw this. Uh, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Some replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. And may God bless the reading of that beautiful portion of his holy word. Well, friends, we can come now to consider what we've just read. Let's ask God's blessing as we do so. Let us pray.
our loving God. Again, we are foolish to proceed from this point without asking for your Holy Spirit to help. So we pray for that now for the preacher who is tired, who is inadequate for the task, and for each of us, including the preacher, as we listen. Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Make us soft to be impressed with the truth and with the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's from that singular account of the sinful woman forgiven that I've just read from Luke 7, 36 to 50, that I wish to speak to you this morning, friends. It's an interesting account indeed, and it's not to be found in any of the other gospel records of Jesus' earthly ministry. So you can scan through Matthew, Mark and John and you won't find it. It is about a sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries those same feet with her hair. And in declaring her forgiven, Jesus uses a parable to explain what is happening. Now we're going to focus on two main points arising from this passage. The first point is the contrast between being merely religious and having true faith. All right, Between being merely religious and having true faith. And the second idea we're going to consider is a very simple one. It's that forgiveness comes from the Lord. So let's look at our first idea. Religiosity, or being merely religious, versus true faith. So this first point, friends, is to see the contrast between being merely religious and having true faith. The contrast or the distinction, the difference between a person who is purely religious in their practices and the person who has true faith in the Lord. And in order to do this, let's follow the story as it unfolds from Luke 7. Jesus is in the house of a fellow called Simon, the Pharisee. Now this Simon, just in case you don't realise, it's not the same as Simon Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Two different guys. Simon, of course, was quite a common name in the Jewish world at the time. Now Jesus, by this time, had stirred up quite a lot of attention. And large crowds of people were following him. So it only made sense that Simon, as a prominent religious leader would want Jesus to come and eat at his own home, at least to show off that he's up with the swings of fashion on who you know, the latest celebrity preacher was. But certainly he would want to know more about who this interesting fellow Jesus is. And Jesus, of course, accepts the offer to dinner and he sits down at the table. And there at the end of verse 36, if you can follow, uh, it says that he reclined at the table. Now, this is helpful to understand how someone coming into the room from outside would have actually physically approached Jesus. And the way men at the time would sit at a, ta- at a dinner table was the, the, the table, of course, would be low-lying and it would be in the centre of the room. And it was the custom to lie down with their left elbow propped up on the table and their feet pointing towards the outer part of the room. Does that make sense? So then they could all grab the food with their right hand which was uh, of course the manners and um, their feet would be pointing out away from the table and then we're introduced in verse 37 to a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town and friends in the context of the passage and the time in which it is set 
there's really only one line of work that this woman would have been engaged in, isn't there? It's what I like to call the professional breaking of the commandment against adultery. Right? She was a woman of ill repute. And what does this sinner of a woman do? Well, she's carrying what our translation calls an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, the actual physical object that she had was most likely one commonly used by Jewish women at the time. It was probably a small vial or a flask made of alabaster. And for our people who don't know, alabaster is like a type of plaster or, or a gypsum type, uh, uh, hard, uh, uh, brittle gypsum. And it was tended to be worn on a cord around the neck and contained either a perfume or a fragrant ointment. And then verse 38 says this, And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, I explained just a moment ago how Jesus was sitting at the table. And the woman stands behind and obviously out to the side somewhat so that she is at his feet. Now, keep in mind, friends, that the roads were dusty in Palestine and people did not get around in fancy shoes like they do now. They either went barefoot or they wore sandals. We find out uh, later that no one else had washed Jesus' feet. So it is safe to say that the situation facing this woman was not exactly glamorous, was it? Uh, you know, our, our Lord was, was fully human. So we're talking about probably you know, not very nice smelling feet caked with dust and dirt. Okay? And she wets his feet with her tears. And the word in the original is actually very beautiful. The word is that she bedewed his feet. There must have been enough tears to make his feet actually wet, give something of a, of a light covering. I mean, she was certainly not squeezing out tears for effect, was she? They were flowing spontaneously. That's why I wanted Psalm 6 read this morning. Psalm 6 is full of tears and weeping, isn't it? Here, friends, was the overflow of this lady's very heart. The original language conveys the idea that the woman then hurried to wipe those tears away from Jesus' feet. And what does she use? She doesn't grab a towel, does she? She uses her hair. Now, for a Jewish woman in those times to uncover her hair in public, and even religious uh, Jews now, it's the same case, to uncover her hair in public was, was, was to bring disgrace upon herself. It actually suggests her line of work, as I mentioned earlier, that it's not of good repute. But she's acting in haste, isn't she? Maybe she's worried about upsetting him. Maybe she really does not want to defile his feet with her unclean tears. So why, 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 why did she do it? Well, there's only one possibility as to why she should bedew Jesus' feet with her tears and then dry those feet with her hair. This woman is overcome with complete humility before Jesus Christ. Abject humility and total servitude. So much is she overcome with the emotional outpouring of her humility that she cries tears aplenty and then she just forgets her own dignity and wipes his feet with her hair. Then what does she do? Well, verse 38 goes on to tell us that she kissed his feet. It's as if she's becoming bolder in his presence. And then she takes her flask of perfume and anoints his feet with it. 
Now let's have a little think, friends. Let's track through what we've covered so far. How many words have been exchanged between Jesus and the woman so far? How many? No, zero, right? Exactly. And this lady, she speaks not a single word. But what does she have to say? Don't you think her actions have said it all? She is a woman of the streets. She's almost definitely uneducated. She's one of the outcasts of society. She doesn't have a theologically polished spiel to broadcast. And she doesn't even have a formula for a so-called sinner's prayer. (coughs) She has true faith, friends. And that faith is focused on Jesus Christ. Now, she must have at least, to be in this situation, heard about Jesus, right? But if you think about her actions, I reckon it's very likely that she hadn't merely heard about Jesus, that she actually heard him teach. Possibly she'd been in one of the crowds where he'd preached about the kingdom of God. She may even have seen some of his miracles. Either way, she just had to come to see him, to be with him. So she sneaks her way into a dinner party at the home of an important religious man and she is driven to approach Christ. Her faith in Jesus, immature and incomplete as it is, her faith in Jesus compels her to come to be near Christ. Now there's every chance, friends, that any other man that this lady had had contact with saw her as a mere object, either an object of desire or an object of derision. An easy opportunity for a good time. Yet she comes to Jesus, and he's not like all the other men, is he? He doesn't leer at her. He doesn't have anything nasty to say. He doesn't have any lewd comments to make. He is safe for her to be around, but he's also not in her power at all. Rather, she is on the verge of encountering a power which she never would have dreamt was possible. And what happens next in our passage? Well, the owner of the house, the host, Simon the Pharisee, also does not say anything, but he certainly speaks to himself, as verse 39 puts it, or perhaps more accurately, within himself, as the old King James Version phrases it. He's looking for evidence against Jesus by this point, isn't he? Simon thinks if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Oh, I think Simon, this bloke Jesus is not all he's cracked up to be. Letting a woman like that touch his feet? No way. Interesting, isn't it? See, we have to pause for a moment, don't we? I reckon each of us, if we're honest with ourselves... Especially if we're you know, from nice middle-class families, we would find an echo of Simon's thoughts in our own mind. True? You know, that is much of the reason, isn't it, behind gossiping and bad-mouthing other people. In thinking or saying how bad or immoral or dirty or foolish or sinful someone else is, what do we do? We're reassuring ourselves that we are good, moral, clean, wise, upright. So in that vein, Jesus introduces a parable into the situation. And a very brief parable it is. And so here it is in verses 41 and 42 of our passage. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, I'll pause there. A denarii was about a day's wages, but without sort of the banking system at the time, it's very clear, isn't it? 50 denarii might be manageable, but 500, that guy's never going to be able to pay that back. He's got no chance. It's an unpayable debt. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them? will love him more. Then Simon gives his answer. And I like to speculate as to what Simon's tone was here. Was it an answer breathed out in a frustrating, condescending sigh like certain teenagers I know might give? Or was he pleased with himself for having answered the question correctly? Verse 43, he says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled I mean, Simon's answer is not surprising, is it? But the question is what we today would call a no-brainer. Of course, the person with the greater debt forgiven would be the one who would love more. But maybe by this point, Simon is thinking that the pearls of wisdom he'd hoped to glean from this exciting new teacher, Jesus, were not going to be on offer that evening. Or perhaps even that Jesus was really only capable of, you know, childish stories with no deep meaning. Maybe he thought Jesus was a bit of a one-trick pony. Disappointingly shallow, maybe. But Jesus has, in fact, with very few words, a very brief parable, put Simon into a corner from which he cannot escape. The sad part of it all is that as straightforward and as simple as Jesus' story is and as simple as the answer is to the question he has posed, Simon the Pharisee does not seem to understand that the parable serves as a condemnation of him. Our Lord then goes on to contrast the woman's devotion and her obvious love with Simon's own lack of even common customary courtesy. Let's have a look at verses 44 to 46. No water for feet washing from Simon is contrast with the woman's tears and her wiping them with her hair. No kiss hello from Simon. The woman has kissed Jesus' feet continually. No ointment for Jesus' head was given by Simon. But that woman has perfumed even his feet. And then, friends, in verse 47 comes the clincher. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. What Jesus is doing here is both stating a broad principle and at the same time he's speaking directly to Simon the Pharisee. Simon is a religious man, a man of knowledge, a man of standing in Jewish society or or the church as it was at the time. The sinful woman, and we never even learn her name. If you notice that some of the real you know, stars of, of the Gospels. We never know their name. That's one thing I want to find out in heaven. <laughs> what is the name of uh, some of these people? We never learn her name. She's not religious. She would never have been welcome in the temple or the synagogue. And she was not likely to have great knowledge or wisdom, but rather was an outcast from God's people. A woman of no standing. Put in business terms, this woman brought nothing to the deal. She had nothing good in herself to offer, and didn't she know it? The Pharisee, however, brought his own righteousness. She brought no righteousness of her own, and effectively, Jesus says here, 
that if Simon the Pharisee wants to keep his own righteousness, then he'll find no forgiveness from the Lord. The parable only takes the conclusion of the debtor with the smaller debt so far, but in the real world, it is the sinful woman whose sins are forgiven, whereas Simon is not offered forgiveness. To the woman, Christ sees that her heart has been laid bare before him, and she is truly one of the people who is poor in spirit, one who is truly humble, and her acts of devotion show the great love that she has for the one who is now her forgiver. Jesus said earlier in Luke 5 that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here we have it being played out. This parable and the forgiveness of the woman is surprising to everyone around them. But it fits in perfectly, if you're familiar with this part of Luke, Jesus' love towards the demon-possessed in Luke 4, towards lepers in Luke 5, the man with the withered hand in Luke 6. The woman here in Luke 7 has tears from her guilt before the Holy One of Israel. She has tears because she is undone before the perfect Lord. Her tears have not been drummed up or manufactured by emotional manipulation. And those tears form the evidence of her saving faith. She is crying because she has come to seek a certain person and has found that person. And she is bowled over by who he is and therefore by who she is before him. Her faith is in one person and it is the right person, isn't it? Therein lay the difference between her and Simon the Pharisee. His faith is in a system of works and of morality and of self. Her faith is in the person whom she has sought. He looks within himself for righteousness. She looks outside of herself for righteousness. The Pharisee here, he knows every word of the law, but he cannot even imagine that the author and soon-to-be fulfiller of that same law, is sitting at his own table. The sinful woman may not know the law in great detail, but she certainly knows that she has broken God's law and that the only person who can forgive her that unpayable debt, the only person who can forgive that debt, is the one at whose feet she now stands and her emotions overflow to copious tears upon that person's feet. And she should now, shouldn't she? For the rest of the sermon, she won't be known as the sinful woman. She'll be known as the woman who goes in peace. And friends, so is the case today. An encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ rendered this woman in Luke 7 completely undone. She unraveled before him. And so should we be undone when we encounter him at least for the first time. Now, this is not to dictate, okay? I need to be careful here, not to dictate any level of emotional response. Okay, you don't have to be a blubbering mess, okay, this morning. But when we say we have come to Jesus, but that our experience is the same as when we meet, you know, another famous person or the Dalai Lama or, say, Baba, some leader, then we need to hold that up against what this woman in Luke 7 experienced. That's why I ask that our first reading, which Luke brought to us before, be from um, Psalm, um, Psalm 6. 
Now, there's no direct connection between Psalm 6 and the passage we're considering from Luke 7 today. The circumstances of David, of course, were very different. And when he wrote wrote those words, from what we find with the woman here at Jesus' feet, but the weeping over sin and the knowledge and feeling of urgently needing the Lord's mercy are echoed here. You see, all too often people say that they have met Jesus and that they feel confirmed or that they feel themselves elevated or they feel validated within themselves. They're not necessarily wrong. But this woman in Luke 7 met Jesus and she fell apart. She was exposed. She was overwhelmed with the conviction of her own guilt before the Holy One of Israel. She didn't have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, she was laid bare, spiritually speaking, and her conscience boiled over into tears of repentance. She felt no elevation of herself, but she felt abasement. And she did the only thing she could possibly do. She clung to the Lord Jesus for mercy. Contrast that with Simon the Pharisee. Self-righteous, comfortable in his own position, not recognising the searing holiness and sin-exposing purity of his house guest. And I'm convinced that the question is begged, are you, and I ask this of myself, but the question is, are you a Simon the Pharisee? Are you counting on your own righteousness to get right with God? Do you, even if you've been in church for years, do you look scornfully down on others who are receiving forgiveness, not realising that you're scorning the very Lord who is the one who forgives? Or do you find echoes of this woman within yourself? See, there's a fascinating interplay, isn't there, between uh, uh, faith and emotions in what she does. She is humble. She is overwhelmed with a sense of her own guilt and she cries copious tears and she forgets her own dignity. She is one of the sinners whom Christ came to call to repentance. And you're not being asked, as I said earlier, you're not being asked here about whether you cried over your sin before you became a Christian. And no one is asking you today how low you went, emotionally speaking, before you believed But you are being asked whether you have become aware of your own sinfulness before the perfect Son of God who came to save sinners such as you and me. And just as this woman shows that she loved much, does your life now reflect the same? Are you devoted to Jesus Christ, forgetting the disapproval of others, not minding the cost to you? Loving with your whole self, he who forgave your unpayable, massive debt of sins. Well, our second point, friends, it's a much briefer point, is that forgiveness is from the Lord. When Christ says to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven, it evokes a response in the other people sitting around the table. Verse 49 tells us that, a little like Simon just before, they say it among themselves. There's a lot of unspoken words and mumbling in this passage, aren't there? Who is this who even forgives sins, is what they say. Well, Jesus Christ is establishing 
exactly who he is. You see, it would be easy for us to look at this parable that is told about the two debtors and think of it as a wise little fairy tale in a neatly packaged moral message. But Christ won't let us do that, will he? He applies it to the woman, then decrees directly that her sins are forgiven. Now we have this tendency, don't we? We want to take the parables, worldly people that we are, and make them into something like a fairy tale or a nursery story. But they're not that at all. Jesus is teaching about the very nature of the kingdom of God. Okay, This parable is about the nature of the kingdom of God. Now Luke has told us before this that Jesus was going about teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. And here he is. He's doing that right here. And he is saying that the kingdom of God is one whose citizens are forgiven. Forgiven. All right? Jesus is not just telling us a morality tale. And the parable is certainly not some quaint sermon illustration. Jesus is actually bringing about the reality of the kingdom of heaven in telling this parable. Does that make sense? Jesus is actually bringing about the reality of the kingdom of heaven in telling this parable. Why, well, why would I say that? It's because he is speaking of the forgiveness of sins to those whose debt to God is so great and who know it is a debt that can only be paid by it being cancelled, by it being totally forgiven. And then this reality of forgiveness is applied to the woman at his feet. Does it make sense? He goes directly from the parable to the woman in her situation. He applies the reality of the forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of God to the woman who has just exposed her heart before him. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, do you see how we cheapen the parables when we reduce them to quaint stories and morality plays instead of a revelation of the realities of the kingdom of heaven? Do you also see how Christ himself will not let us get away with that? Because the reality is inextricably linked with the revealing of who he is. The parable is about forgiveness from a certain moneylender. And the upshot is that a real person has her sins really forgiven by a person who has real power to do so. Elsewhere in the gospel narratives, we find that the people around Jesus equate his forgiving of sins with himself putting, uh, putting himself on par with God. And this is one of the times... That is, detractors actually get things right. So in verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? There can be only one answer, and it's the Lord. The Lord himself, Jesus, is here establishing that he is indeed the Lord. But he doesn't say it in so many words. And friends, this is profound. With a parable that occupies only two short verses of Luke 7, With a handful of simple words of forgiveness to this woman, Jesus is establishing the two things which are central to his mission, to his coming to earth as a man. Those two things are, number one, that his mission is primarily concerned with the forgiveness of sins and with peace with God. And number two, 
that he is the Lord who has power to forgive sins. And the end result for the woman is a happy one indeed. She goes on her way, a forgiven woman of faith. And it is the exact same story today for you, friend. If you are someone who has lived a sinful life, a sinful life, not as necessarily as scandalous as this lady must have had, but if you have betrayed other people, if you have lived as if God's moral law had no bearing on you, it doesn't matter if you're living on the streets, injecting yourself with drugs and selling your body, or if you're a nice, middle-class, happy, comfortable person, if you have lived as if God's moral law had no bearing on you, then you can stand in that woman's spot, whether you're a woman or a man or a girl or a boy, and know that you are forgiven if you come to Jesus Christ, who has the power to forgive sins, and you are safe with him and will find forgiveness and he will grant you peace. Can you see how here Christ is giving us a glimpse of what is ahead? of the climax of his earthly ministry. He's going about the towns and the countryside teaching and preaching and performing healings and miracles and it is all on his way to the cross, all a build-up to the crowning event. All of these things that we're reading about here are a foretaste of the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, at the cross when he died, Jesus shows us that he is the Lord who has the power to forgive sins. And he does so by taking our sins upon himself. He is the creditor, just like you know the certain moneylender in his parable. But he's the creditor who pardons the sin of his debtors by having those sins put on his accounts, written against his name. The parable that we've been looking at today introduces the reality of forgiveness. But it also sets us up for the great transaction that was to come, whereby that forgiveness was effected. And the forgiveness effected by Christ crucified is so complete, so all-encompassing, that it applies to the woman who had just anointed Christ's feet. But the forgiveness springing forth from, from Christ's sacrificial death also applies to us today in this room or anyone watching on the video feed. He has cancelled the debt of our sins, just like the moneylender in the parable here. Oh, you know, the prayer you know, that each of us would seek the person of Christ that the woman of Luke 7 sought, that each of us would see the forgiver of sins that this woman saw, and oh, you know, that each of us would know the crucified Christ forgiving our sins, just like that woman whose tears wet the feet of her Saviour. And finally, friends, this is not only a call to the unconverted. This is a call to each and every Christian believer here to keep continually in our minds the Lord Jesus Christ, the real, scriptural, biblical Lord Jesus Christ, to keep the Lord Jesus Christ in our affections, to adore him for who he is, just like this woman did. To love Jesus for his place and power as the forgiver of sins, of, of our sins. To love Christ as the one who says to us, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
and to always see him as the one at whose feet we are humbled, but who offers us real forgiveness, real restoration of right relationship with the Lord in heaven, and who speaks tenderly to us that we go in peace, peace with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed by the power, authority, love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. Lord, forgive us when we'll take the position of Simon the Pharisee or the other guests at the table. Lord, we pray by your spirit you'll help us each to be like this woman, to come to know forgiveness, to be one who loves much because we've been forgiven much. We ask, Lord, that uh, being alive in Christ, that each believer here would know that, would live that love based on the gospel, the powerful forgiveness that Christ has purchased for us. And we ask this in his name.